Thanks, everybody. It is a joy and a blessing to be with you all this morning. Joy and a blessing to be with you all this morning. Um, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity I have to be up here preaching. It's, yeah, straight from God, truly. Um, Today, as Doug said, we're going to be in Luke. So if you wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to Luke 14. Luke 14, in case you missed it the first time. Um, Recently, I've resolved to read scripture as a book. If you don't know me, I read a lot. I'll just keep going if you put a book in front of me. In the summer, it's about one book a day. And I just sit and start reading. And then by dinner time, I realize, oh, I've been reading since breakfast time. When I read, it lets me go anywhere. I can escape my busy life. I can escape my homework, my job, anything, and live inside one of the books that I'm reading. But God's been talking to me recently about this, and he's been saying some difficult things. Why would you try and escape, he's asking me, when I've created you to be present in this world right here? I realize that I know more about some of the books I'd read in the past month than I do about the Old Testament. And so, finally picking up on what God's been saying, I resolved to read through it. I decided to start with Isaiah, and I'm under no misconception that this will be quick. It's been a month, and I'm still not done with just that one book. Not the whole of the Old Testament. That would be normal, I think. Reading through Scripture... I'm realizing as I dig into Isaiah, instead of any of the other books that I normally read, allows me to know the God of heaven's character. How could I put anything before that? As we talk about what serving God should look like, what's been taking his place in our lives? Maybe it's leisure, maybe it's friends, work, stress, school, many things I know can take his place. But the parable we're about to read reminds us that God needs to come first in everything. Let's see how Jesus tells us to do this in Luke 14, 13 through 24. He's at a dinner party talking to the guests. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." One of the dinner guests on hearing this said to him, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to him, Someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Then another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I've just been married, and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Sir, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who are invited will taste my dinner. The word of the Lord. 
This parable, the parable of the great feast, has elements that are similar to the surrounding chapters. In Luke 13, Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God and the blindness of the Pharisees to the truth of his sonship. And Luke 15 centers on God's persistent love for sinners, including the parable of the lost sheep and the story of the prodigal son. The parable of the great feast is generally read as a rebuke to Jews who denied Jesus' sonship as Messiah. Jesus reframes common expectations of what the messianic banquet will look like and reveals God's plan to offer sinners and Gentiles entry into the feast. Now, I know that I'm not supposed to put myself in the story. As my New Testament professor always says, in the story of David and Goliath, you are not David. David is David. (laughs) But as I was preparing, I wondered what this parable might teach us about the role of faithful Christians in God's redemptive work. I found two characters that give us an idea of right and wrong ways to serve God, the role of the guests and the role of the slave though I'll use the word servant here as it's interchangeable in this context. Every commentary I read focused on the guests, and with good reason. Jesus uses them to provide contrast. In the parable, the guests and the servant are both given an opportunity to spend time with the master, but the guests choose not to. All of them decline an invitation to the feast. We know this isn't just some dinner. It symbolizes the feast of the risen lamb, Christ in glory, face shining brighter than the sun, the cherubim and seraphim around the throne, flashes of lightning and rumbling thunder. They're crazy. How could they think anything would be more worthy of their time? But the reasons they give are familiar to us. The first has come into ownership of some land that he wants to inspect. The second has just bought oxen and wants to try them out. Not at all like us if we get a new car or a new toy to play with. And the third declines because he's just gotten married. I want to make it very clear that none of these things are inherently bad. Wealth, novelty, and relationships are all good things. But they're things that won't last. We love to put these things before God. I know that I do. Why read scripture when I can listen to a new band or watch Netflix? But new music and TV shows don't last for eternity. And knowing God's nature through his word does. To serve God means putting him first, even when it's hard, and especially when we don't want to. Which is why I love Jesus' use of the word excuses here. Though it would be easy to write all of these good things off as legitimate reasons to turn down the invite, Jesus makes it very clear that nothing should prevent us from attending when called. Now, I don't know how many of you kept up with news of the British royal wedding this past spring... I'm sure some of you are excited I'm bringing it back, and others are horrified and appalled. But let's say you were excited for this wedding. Let's say you'd been waiting your entire life for it. You'd been secretly hoping, wishing that somehow you might get invited. And then one day, out of the blue, you get a gold-edged invitation. You'd go. Of course you'd go. This is what you've been waiting for. No matter what was on your calendar, no matter how difficult it might be to make it, you would move heaven and earth to get there. We get God's invitations to be a part of his kingdom work constantly. But for some reason, instead of saying, yes, Lord, take me, take my time, take my talents in whatever ways you decide, we say, of course, God, just as soon as I can enjoy life a little— 
as soon as I can get everything in order. Not now, but soon. The message here is one that is in the Bible over and over in both Testaments. Put nothing above the Lord your God. Westmont's motto says it best, Christ preeminent, Christ before all things. What would our lives look like if we held these good things lightly, keeping in mind that we have them on behalf of Christ, but instead we become blinded by the good things that we have and the good things that we want, and we end up forgetting to say thank you to the one that gives them to us in the first place. Where in our lives do we need God's perspective to reorient our own? And what does that actually look like? While the parable of the great feast is often read looking only at the guests and their rejections, it also provides a paradigm for Christian service in God's redemptive plan. Who should we emulate in this story if the master is God and the guests are first century Jews? In the role of the servant, we see readiness and obedience. This is what God asks of us, to know him and to dedicate our whole lives to the coming and work of his kingdom. These are huge topics, so why don't they jump out at us when we read the parable? Because the servant is humble. He fades into the background, getting important work done, while the guest's drama steals the spotlight. After those he invited Baal, the master tells the servant to go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The servant replies in such a profound way. He says that this has already been done. He anticipated what the master was going to call him to do. In college, I've noticed a prevailing narrative of waiting for God's call. Students, rather than being productive, starting habits and lifestyles that might follow them beyond their schooling, treat the four years as an in-between time. And I'm not just speaking to college students here. We all go through periods of waiting in our lives. Whether it's a hard change in finances, family or marital stress, or the long hours of a tiring job, in these in-between times where we're just waiting on God, we quickly slip into apathy. We justify it by saying that we're not sure where God wants us or what our call may eventually look like. But as Christians, we don't have to wait for our master to tell us what to do. God tells us in the Bible. In the Gospels of Christ, we see a life lived perfectly for us to emulate. In Acts, we see a community of believers filled with the conviction of the Spirit. In Paul's letters, we learn right living and persistence in the faith. In the entire narrative of the Old Testament, we're given context to understand the foundations of what we believe. We have these things verbatim. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not covet. Have no other gods before me. Go and make disciples. As Christians, we know what our master wants of us, whether he tells us directly or not. The servant in the parable knows what his master wants before he even says it. If we're praying and reading scripture in dialogue with our Heavenly Father, then we can do kingdom work even when God's silence seems overwhelming. What I've found as I've talked to people about, about what their call looks like is that for some, it is a voice in their ear. But for others, it's the simple reality of looking at their life and seeing it being lived in service to others and to God. God's plan for salvation includes all of us all the time. We should be trusting God and waiting on him. But are we waiting passively 
or are we waiting readily? As we continue looking at the servant, we see his humility and obedience. There's a huge discrepancy here between the guests and the servant. The guests make excuses. I can almost see them sounding apologetic and regretful, but in their minds being excited about their reasons to ditch dinner. But the servant doesn't respond in this way. He follows the master's orders without comment, even though he is sent out over and over again trying to fill the host's home. By the third time he's sent out, when the master tells him to compel people to come in, we imagine he must be pretty tired. But he still goes out and brings complete strangers back for dinner, having persuaded them of the kindness and the goodness of their host. Do we do the same for God? When he sends us to fill his house to make disciples, is this how we respond? Do we try again and again, even when we fail? Or do we become discouraged? And when we have trouble remembering God's kindness to us, are we still able to talk about it to others? This, as unwelcome as it may seem, and as difficult as it looks, is humble obedience. Where do we need this humble obedience to break into our lives? How can we really serve if there are parts of us that we still put outside of God's authority. The last point that I want to make is about the length of our servitude to Christ. I work at the Goleta Valley Library, putting all the books that you return on the shelves. When I was hired, my boss asked me, are you okay with the fact that your job may seem never-ending? Of course, I said, no problem. I'm sure I won't even notice. Just put me to work. But after four years of shelving Stuart Little, Pride and Prejudice, and Your Best Gardening Handbook, I realized how wearing, never-ending really is. And that's only four years. There's still room, the servant says to the master in this parable. And the master tells him to go out and compel people to come in. In God's house, we believe that there is always still room. And so when he remakes us, God asks, are you okay with the fact that your job may seem never-ending? Of course we say, but we don't always anticipate how how wearing this can be later down the road. With school, with a full-time job, with a spouse, with kids, with the open leisure of retirement, we often have a hard choice to put God or our gifts first. And so, remembering the words of my professor, it may be wrong to put myself into a story like that of David and Goliath. In the historical narratives of the Old Testament, I don't really have a place. But Jesus actually invites us to be part of this story. That's why he tells parables. We can see the messages they convey lived out in our own lives. By looking closely at this passage, we see that the Christian isn't actually the guest. The Christian is the humble obedient, and persistent servant. This week, I'm asking all of us to sit with this, to really wrestle with this concept. I think we should look at our lives and consciously choose to put God first in areas that we haven't before. And as we move into a time of reflection, ask yourself, which am I, a guest or a servant?
Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.